Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. So in the last episode, we covered basics of traditional finance or TradFi or centralized finance or CFI, whatever you want to call it. And that sets us up quite nicely to talk about decentralized finance in today's episode. Um, I think one of the most important things that I took from the last episode is there's a lot of inefficiencies and a lot of issues that come about because of these inefficiencies in TradFi. And I think the fundamental philosophy of DeFi is around shifting from you know centralized entities to technology-driven solutions and shifting trust from these centralized entities to more transparent technology and maybe more predictable technology. But yeah, I guess this episode is to really unpack that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we've covered all the kind of foundational concepts of, of finance. So some of what we talk about today should make a lot more sense now because a lot of the stuff in DeFi is trying to replicate some of those financial products and systems in a more efficient way, as you say, or in a, in a slightly less centralized manner where you don't have, I mean, I've seen it described as kind of the centralized finance world's like a hub and spoke model where you have your financial institutions in the middle and everyone else is connecting to them. And then in you know, DeFi, we're, we're talking more about a distributed system where you're interacting directly with your, your peers, your counterparties, rather than having uh, third parties in the middle. But yeah, I think there's lots to cover in, in DeFi in and of itself. That's why we couldn't do it in the same episode as the TradFi one. So I think maybe let's start with just going through some of the basic key concepts. And I don't, I don't think we'll cover everything today. There is so much to talk about, but um, I think it makes sense to start with smart contracts, right? They're kind of the building block for, for all these things. Yeah, definitely. I think when we started this podcast, we actually said, let's do a whole episode just on smart contracts. And we almost certainly will because... They're super important. I think the term is misused in a lot of ways. I know you agree with that, Jack. But yeah, smart contracts at the highest level are effectively self-executing contracts, you know, with the terms in there written in, in lines of code and distributed across the blockchain network. And quite importantly, that they will execute based on these predetermined conditions. And obviously this creates a degree of transparency in their actual execution. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't love the term smart contracts. I know a lot of people don't as well. I tend to try and think of them as kind of like interactive contracts because they're they're just contracts. They're not living. They don't have their own agency, but you can interact with them. And a lot of these blockchains like Ethereum or Binance chain, uh, they are what we call smart contract platforms where you can put a smart contract on there and then you can mm -hmm. interact with it later. Or, uh, and that's kind of the, the basic model. And then these smart contracts in the DeFi world, they become the foundational building blocks. So if you have a protocol for doing a certain financial product, for doing an exchange or something, then that gets put into the logic, the, the functions within this smart contract that you can then interact with. You can basically give it some inputs. It will give you an output, that kind of thing. Maybe the inputs is the tokens you're putting in and then the output is sending tokens to somewhere else. You're getting tokens back out of a different kind, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's very broad, but they are the bedrock of the whole, the whole system really. Yeah, and the kind of the benefit <clears throat> is quite obvious there. There's no need for a third party in the middle or you're effectively removing, you're replacing, say, an actual individual or an entity that would facilitate the demand supply kind of trade with a self-executing contract. And that should, in theory, be more efficient, more transparent and all these things that we keep saying. So that central party, which is classically an entity, maybe has some, I don't know, procedures that are a bit unknown, complex, hidden, becomes much more transparent with by replacing with a smart contract and like i said there's a lot of benefits that come with that and it's a completely foundational piece in everything DeFi. and you say you know in theory and you're right it should be more transparent more efficient than the centralized finance world in reality we'll kind of come on to some of the risks and drawbacks of DeFi later but you know that's not always the case but yeah in principle having a single set of rules that's public and transparent that everyone can interact with is at least improving on the opaqueness of the original uh, centralized finance world um there are there are lots of caveats with it you know like it's it can be very complex to correctly simulate the same logic you need there can be big failings as we've seen you might write this mock contract incorrectly and and there's been kind of a quite a brutal trial and error process for lots of these protocols over the years so it's not it's not like a magic bullet and this is completely uh it's in evolution right it's not reached the final stage yet but um but you can do some pretty amazing things with them i think 
Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. Like the idea of being able to, you know, hard code or put everything in life into a binary format represented in a smart contract is quite a difficult one for me to get my head around. Like there's so much complexity in life. How can a smart contract really include every single potential outcome or input? And I, I find that really hard to actually get my head around. When you're talk, <laughs> talking about like borrowing and loaning, that's quite binary. There's only so many things that can happen. I give you a little bit of money. I expect a little bit more money to be returned the next day. If not, you will pay these fines. But when you start to talk about much bigger things, I don't know, when you're talking about business logic and talking about how this can be applied to security, derivatives, like trades with a thousand different people in a thousand different terms, like that, that is no longer a simple smart contract. It's much more, uh, it's non-trivial to kind of actually to, to create that and to more importantly, probably enforce that as well. Yeah, I would, I would probably add to that what you gain with the transparency of the smart contract is, and it, again, you said like the, the complexity of simulating the complex business logic is very difficult. And one of the things you don't get because it's been become, you know, blockchain based, you don't necessarily have recourse, right? You can't code into a smart contract. Well, how do I resolve a legal dispute? You know, you don't really have that mm. concept so much in smart contracts. It's, it becomes, a, it's very much, um, uh, you have this term code is law that people use often to talk about smart contracts. They say, whatever's defined in this smart contract, that's how the thing works. Like forget about the legal system, which is a, a little bit scary. And I don't think it, you know, I think that's probably a misunderstanding, but for practical purposes, that is kind of how it works right now. If something happens at a smart contract and the smart contract has a bug and it all goes wrong, a lot of the time, then you're going to lose your funds. So that that's why it's also quite an experimental wild west space at the minute as well, right? You have to be very careful when you, when you research and get involved with, with the DeFi project. Yeah, and I think one thing that is hard to get my head around sometimes is how do you get the data into it? Like, say you have these predefined conditions and I say, you know, uh, you know, I pay back £10,000 on X date. And I know that's actually quite an easy one to prove in, in, in DeFi generally. But what about other data? Like, how do I say prove exchange rates? How do I prove that some event has happened that's actually separate to the DeFi protocol? I think that is much more complex. And we'll talk about some of the mechanics for that. Yeah. And I think just before we kind of move on from the smart contracts, because as I said, we, we need a whole episode to talk about the specifics of that. And I think we will. But some of the terms you, you will have potentially heard, one of them is ERC-20. So this is a standard. And that's one of the good things about smart contracts is that they have a huge developer community around them already, especially in Ethereum and Binance Smart Chain and another another you know, blockchains that exist now. You have big developer communities. Standards have emerged kind of organically over the years for how to create certain types of smart contracts. So if you want to go and create a token protocol, if you want to build a lending protocol on top of Ethereum or one of these other chains, then you have the standards there. So as I said, ERC-20 is how you go and build a fungible token, a token that you know, acts more like money. Mm. There's also one ERC-721 for NFTs. And those are kind of defining okay, what the contracts look like. But there's all these other tools on top as well, things like Open Zeppelin, which is a library for building these. So you you can it takes about 25 seconds to, mm. to build a token system on Ethereum if you want, right? It's crazy. You can just go and you know pick a logo, pick a, a trading name for your for your token, and then you're away, right? It's 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 quite mature now how you do a lot of these things. And this is what you're doing on your in your free time, right? On the weekends, just starting all this stuff up. <laughs> now I think you're right. Like one of the big things that we're talking about is in general benefits of DeFi is that things are open protocol. There are standards that allow you to move from, say, different application to different application. And that's a massive benefit of anyone building on a DeFi protocol, as we've talked about previously, which is the same benefit of Web3. The fact that things aren't closed off means that people can feel much more comfortable creating like this community vibe building on top of things that you know are going to be stable in the future. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really important. I think so one of the things that we just mentioned with, to do with smart contracts is how to get data into the smart contract. And this is one that I find particularly interesting. This is, we call these oracles. And oracles are effectively a way to get, well, I guess, data generally from external sources onto, like I said, blockchains quite generally, but maybe smart contracts if we're talking specifically about DeFi. So it will have oracles that are effectively ways to access real world data. It could be prices. So if we're talking about exchange rates, you know, I've committed to some smart contract that says, okay, um, on this date, I want you to submit this trade. And the Oracle could plug in on that date, the actual exchange rate, say from pounds to USD or a stable coin, whatever it is, or it could pull in weather data or something like this. And it basically enables smart contracts to have a wider repository of data, right? And pull data 
from external sources that aren't necessarily in the blockchain itself or on the DeFi protocol itself. Yeah, I can tell you're more enthused by the Oracle side of DeFi than some other parts, <laughs> maybe because, you know, then it gets you into the world of IoT and data feeds coming into the blockchain. Uh, and just to kind of add color to what you're saying, right, I think it's worth mentioning when you have these smart contracts, normally they don't really have any awareness of context outside of the the rule set that is, say, Ethereum, right? It knows how to value when you have a transaction happening in Ethereum that's interacting with a smart contract it can access things about that transaction, but it won't be processed with any knowledge of, you know, uh, what score is in the Man United game, right? If you're doing a gambling <laughs> kind of type <laughs> use case, it won't know what, you know, <laughs> what by what massive score Man United lost this week. So the Oracle's kind of also reintroduced a little bit of trust, which is, you know, it's mm. a, a quite a point of contention, but it, it provides a way to inject external state data, like prices, like general news uh, information, that kind of stuff into the the blockchain and how you can have semi-trust there is you tend to have it signed by many different people so you're kind of you're trusting mm -hmm. a little bit but it, it still distributes that trust amongst many parties so you might have five or six different trusted verifiers that all are saying okay this was the price of this asset on this date um, and that's why you tend to have these oracles exist as oracle networks right so Chainlink is the, 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 mm -hmm. kind of the biggest example of an Oracle network where you have lots of different machines that will provide uh, different sources of input data. And then the aggregate of that becomes what you can use in a smart contract. Yeah, I really like that example you gave around gambling. It's like, if I want to bet with you on, say, Man United match or something like that, and you say, okay, I'll bet £10 that Man United win 2-0, for example, and you'll say, you'll give me some return, like, you'll give me £10 back if that is correct. Anything else, then you take my £10 and that's the end of it. Set up a smart contract, very easy to you know get that those conditions, that logic into there. But the only thing that really matters is what the score is at the end of the match, right? And you say the Oracle there is a way to actually get the data from the match, say some trusted source, be it Bet365, I don't know what it is, and pull that data in so that it can execute based on two potential outputs. Either Jack wins, takes all the money because it wasn't 2-0, or I win because it was 2-0 and I take the money. And that's a really good use case. I think you are right. The reason I like Oracle so much is because it makes things practical and tangible. You can give examples that actually work with people's everyday lives. And I think one thing that you mentioned that's really important is that, you know, we're saying things like the blockchain, Bitcoin, these open protocols are battle tested and really trusted. And that, that's very important. And the more we abstract from these trusted distributed networks like Bitcoin, for example, the more risky they are, right? The less trust we actually have in those systems. And this is a big one for oracles. You know, you have the most battle-tested DeFi protocol or smart contract protocol in the world. And then you all of a sudden say, okay, well, it's all dependent on this Oracle that takes data from an external source. Well, that is the, you know, the chink in the armor right there. Like, do we actually trust this Oracle? And that's quite an important thing to understand. Yeah, exactly. As I would, to use your favorite term, that's kind of where the web 2.5 comes in, right? When you introduce oracles, you introduce semi-trusted environments for doing, you know, this is, would be a classic thing would be if, if you're not doing a gambling use case or something, would be like an insurance product that that depends on, um, you know, certain temperature in a region for a farmer getting insurance for crops and things. That's a good, good example I've seen. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting, but that's, you know, it, it, it can be controversial because of the, the, the trusted nature. So that's the first two big components of what make up DeFi, right? Smart contracts, mm -hmm. these, these things you can interact with to implement logic, and then oracles, which help you add data into that mix and you know, do more mm -hmm. interesting things with that logic. The third one that I think we should touch on is actually stable coins, right? Because a lot of these things, to, you know, we're talking financial products, but we're, we're talking about Web3, we're talking about things like Ethereum and Binance or whatever. Mm -hmm. And... To get into that ecosystem, you need your money, right? My money in in my in my bank account can't interact with that. And stable coins mm -hmm. are we've you know we've covered them in previous episodes. Uh, tend to be pegged to the US dollar, for example, have a stable value, but they are Web three tokens, so they are kind of the fuel that is used a lot of the time to on and off board into these DeFi protocols. And I just thought it's worth mentioning because in DeFi, there's a huge reliance on them, right? With, without the liquidity oh, yeah. you get from those stable coins, not, not a lot of this couldn't really happen. And your main point there is that stable coins are a means for people to get into, you know, 
monetary systems that they use every day, like the pound that I can actually buy my grocery with into DeFi protocols like Tether or whatever it is, because that's what DeFi protocols are built on. It's just an access point, right? That actually allows exactly. you to use, get the benefits of DeFi without actually having to, you know, try and use Tether down the shops or something like this. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you think of going from the real the real world and you want to use a DeFi app or protocol, then you you don't have to jump into the DeFi world and back out every mm. time. You can convert some assets using an exchange into say Tether USD or something like that, a stable yeah. coin, and then keep it, you know, going in and out of the Tether uh, mm. between exchanging in between the Tether and the and whatever the token is you're using for a DeFi app or DeFi protocol. So you don't have to leave the whole ecosystem to, to kind of keep your storing your value somewhere, yeah. basically. And we do have an entire episode about digital cash and CBDCs. Um, so there's a lot more information you can find out on that. But it will be interesting to see if we get more and more usage out of stable coins and CBDCs where we care less about the on and off ramping and more about the actual, mm -hmm. you know, staying in the system itself. And that'd be quite powerful. Um, so the next big thing is kind of, I guess, well, a way of actually using these DeFi protocols, and that's around lending and borrowing. And this seems like quite an obvious one. It's effectively a way to use smart contracts, um, for, you know, a simple function for earning interest. If I give you, say, you know, I want to borrow £100, I could collateralize some asset that you agree is worth more than £100, but actually doesn't give me the liquidity that I'm actually after. Say, if I have a, a good example of it might be I have a piece of art that's worth £120, but what I really need is the liquidity of £100. So I say, Jack, Look at this NFT I have. It's worth £120. You agree to that. It's all covered. I say, I'm going to put this up as collateral. If you'll give me £100, and then you'll say, yep, that's completely fine. If you give me £110 back in a month or two months, then everything goes ahead. I'm happy. Fine. If not, I'll take that NFT, and that NFT's ownership will be transferred to me. And that's quite an easy-to-understand way of actually keeping everything in the Web3 space, right? Yeah, exactly. And and this is, you know, this is a very simple use case in DeFi, but it's also one of the original ones, right? So in, I think as far back as 2015, right, DeFi has been a thing. You had MakerDAO, which was the, kind of one of the very mm -hmm. first protocols, was effectively a small lending and borrowing platform that, that came about. And one of the interesting things about uh, DeFi lending and borrowing is you have this idea of what's called over collateralization. So normally you might think of, okay, well, if I'm going to uh, take out a loan, then you have to put up some collateral that the, the bank can take if you, you default mm. on your payments on your loan, right? Now, because, uh, you know, we say this is great because you don't have as much counterparty risk in DeFi because you're just doing it to anonymous entities potentially interacting. But how, how do you know <laughs> my credentials for repaying this mm. loan? You don't know my credit history. So it's a good thing that you can access loans and credit effectively without needing a credit score that's a good good yeah. point about these things but for the counterparty then you have the risk of will you be able to repay it and that's why you have this this over collateralization so if i wanted to borrow 100 pounds then normally they'll ask you to uh put down assets worth about 120 pounds or something right to over collateralize yeah. um so that you can pay the interest plus the the principal amount that you're borrowing if you if you do default so this this lack of trust actually makes it a little bit more expensive in general for lending and cuts down some of the use cases so it's, it's it's one to kind of be aware of but it may be more limited in scope i think yeah that makes sense i guess the point is that it's more efficient because we can interact peer-to-peer -peer and maybe not have processes like kyc verification all this kind of stuff but the problem with that is if you don't have a central party that runs and mediates everything is there's no way to have legal recourse and this has been a big thing for you know centralized web 2 legal enforcers and all this kind of stuff is how can we work on Bitcoin when if I accidentally send a hundred you know, grand to someone or someone doesn't pay back a loan when they're meant to, there's no way for legal recourse. Like, it's a big, powerful thing about Bitcoin is the immutability, right? The finality of Bitcoin. And I completely understand why in that instance, you need to say reduce the risk by having more collateral on the line to actually say, okay, this is going to be fine if, if say you can't pay back the loan in time. Yeah. And in DeFi, that, you know, exactly that. The risk reward profile of all of these things we're going to be talking about is generally more extreme than in the, the, the TradFi, CFI world. Um, mm -hmm. You tend to see higher interest rates. You tend to see, I mean, there's this thing called a flash loan, which is like a, a loan with a lifespan of like seconds or minutes, which is, blows my mind. But it's because you have people with high risk appetites, quite frankly, who want to borrow large amounts of money to do a small arbitrage trade to make a small percentage and then you know pay it back with what they've earned 
on top. So you, you have a lot of people taking a lot of risk and offering quite high rewards for taking risk. And I think that's why, you know, it's alluring for some people, but when it goes wrong, it goes pretty badly wrong as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the next big one, which I really, really think relates to what you've just said is around decentralized exchanges. Like this is a big one hot in the news mm -hmm. constantly. What like, so I think this is a hot topic that we will spend a lot more time on in future episodes, but it kind of uses a lot of the principles that we've spoken about already. The point is rather than, you know, me and Jack want to trade some assets. We go through a centralized exchange that make a bit of money on top of that, a bit of commission. We can interact on a peer-to-peer -peer basis um, through one of these decentralized exchanges, but with a lot less reliance on that. And it takes a much smaller margin, or in theory, it takes a much smaller margin and effectively just linking us up rather than actually facilitating the trade itself. Um, that sounds great, but you know, some of the issues that have been associated with that is it's effectively unregulated, right? And, you know, for, for example, Uniswap is one of the things we're going to speak about a bit later. There was no, there's no KYC required for that in a lot of ways. So I don't need to identify myself if I am to scam people. It's really hard to actually have some recourse to even find out who I am in the real world to even start that process. And again, like we were saying before, there's a trade-off there. Efficiency, but at the cost sometimes of actually having the ability for recourse. And that's a common theme, right? It's, it's all slightly more accessible. It's all, I mean, people like to use the term censorship resistant, right? It doesn't really stop you from entering the system, but the risk reward profile is, is very different. Um, and I something about the DEXs, the decentralized exchanges I find interesting is they actually, there are two different types that they, they, they've basically been trying to build. So one being what's called an order book DEX, which looks very similar to what the ones we talked about last week in, in TradFi like simulating what happens with your normal stock exchanges, stockbrokers, they have an order book matching buyers and sellers. Um, mm -hmm. Building that on the blockchain is, is quite difficult and is not really that popular to be quite frank, because it involves a lot of the problems you just mentioned, uh, but, but with additional like lack of trust that you don't have in the old world, you have a central party there. The other version, which is again, a lot more interesting and where a lot of the innovation has been in DeFi is what they call AMM DEXs or and getting into this, <laughs> acronym mm. soup now so amm standing for uh, automated market maker and we talked a lot about market making in the last episode well one of the really marquee innovations in DeFi is building these automated market makers and we'll, we'll get into how they work in just a bit but they're, they're essentially a completely new mechanism to make markets that only really happens via smart contracts right now yeah i mean maybe we can dive into it right now because i think like you say AMMs or automated market makers are big in the space and they're mm. effectively, like you say, how, how a lot of decentralized exchanges work. So my understanding of this, I'd say, is, is quite shallow, but it's effectively in DeFi in the whole protocols and the things you just talked about. It lets you trade assets without the need for a specific buyer or seller, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically, yeah. Okay, and they, 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 they work using these pools of money I mean, to facilitate trades and the price of the assets are in these pools are determined by some formula and not actually by individual sellers or buyers like in traditional systems. Yeah, exactly. This is it's a good demonstration of what we talked about with smart contracts. So your automated market maker, the, the maker is actually your smart contract, right? You build this smart contract that has certain logic in it that defines, mm -hmm. how, you know, what rules this market maker follows. So when you interact with it, how does it respond to you, basically? And they're all pretty much based around this concept of the liquidity pool, whereby you'll take a smart contract and you say, I want this to be a market maker for a specific trading pair. So you'll say, okay, mm -hmm. I want this to be Ethereum to the DAI coin, DAI, which yeah. is the, the maker DAO coin I mentioned. So I want to make a liquidity pool. Uh, I want to make a market for trading between Ethereum and DAI coins. Then this liquidity pool effectively gets established and set up with the smart contract. Mm -hmm and you put in tokens for Ethereum and you put in tokens for DAI. And the ratio of tokens in that pool is what sets the price. So that when we talked about getting data in and out of the system, the smart contract doesn't need to know a kind of global market price from an exchange mm. like Coinbase. It determines it based on how the level of, of coins in this pool fluctuates. And as you said, there's a kind of, they have different models, but the, the most popular one and one of the original ones is called the constant product formula. Have you come across this one, Alec? No, I haven't, but I guess it's what the, the ratio of one to the other has to be constant or something like this. Yeah, basically the number of tokens of one multiplied mm -hmm. by the number of tokens of the other asset, so X times Y, has to be yeah. equal to a constant all the time. So what does that okay. actually mean? If you want to kind of interact with the pool, then 
any trade you do because you're basically trading with the pool right you have a pool of assets you mm -hmm. can buy and sell from the pool and what it does is it will let you buy and sell from the pool of one of the tokens but in such a way that the change in tokens of both sides is always constant right so that just basically means the number of tokens will change one of them will go up one of them go down the product is the same and then the price is is changed based on the ratio change so that's a little bit too technical for what we normally do, but it is, it's <laughs> worth looking into. And there, there are more complex ones, but that's that's been the model, right? Uniswap was the big marquee one, the, the, the first big successful, you know, so I think it's a, it's a billion dollars now or something. It's is huge, but that, that's what that uses typically. And I guess what the incentive for people contributing to this liquidity pool, which effectively enables all this is they take well, some margin, margin of all the trading fees, right? Yeah, exactly. They get issued if you if you contribute funds, you lock funds to one or both sides of that pool, and then you get these liquidity pool tokens, LP tokens, in return, right? And then based there's a small fee on every transaction, and then you take a portion of the fees according to how much of the LP tokens you've got. So you can see this gets complicated quite quickly, <laughs> but yeah, it does work by by the looks of things. Okay, well, that's interesting. I guess that kind of relates to some of the other things we want to mention, like yield farming, for example, which is quite similar to, I guess, staking, which you've just talked about a little bit, which is effectively lending to DeFi protocols like Uniswap, right? And, you know, you're automatically using strategies to extract the maximum yields from, a, from crypto capital, typically using multiple DeFi protocols at the same time. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the farming idea, I mean, it introduces this concept of composability. I think we mentioned it in the TradFi episode, but because you have all these smart contracts that can interact with each other as well, and you can build much more complex systems by making them talk to each other, and then you can do much more complex strategies to, to extract the most yield, the most money out of the system. Mm. And again, it becomes very complex, uh, much riskier when you start doing this, you know, taking out loans to put down collateral to reinsure uh, you know, another product. It becomes very complex very quickly. And then the next one is staking. I guess most, I mean, I've staked. I think most people have uh, who own crypto assets generally have come across this concept of staking. I think Coinbase first supported it for Ethereum 2.0, right? And this is the idea of locking up assets so your ethereum as collateral for example to support a new blockchain so people would uh, lock up their you know ethereum for the new stake ethereum 2.0 to actually support and be used in that so that for that one specifically you'd lock up your ethereum so that you could eventually contribute to say be a validator which required a certain threshold of ethereum to actually say you've committed resources to you know care enough about this blockchain to be able to validate that the, the consensus mechanism going forward yeah it's, it's this idea of staking is very closely related to locking in a DeFi protocol or um, providing liquidity to an automated market maker. It's another way of putting in assets and getting rewards for doing so. Staking generally refers to adding assets to help secure a blockchain like Ethereum, whereas the locking and um, liquidity provision for other things is more about DeFi protocols uh, kind of on top of Ethereum. But yeah, as you said, I think it's like something like 32 Ethereum you need for to be a validator so i don't know if you've got that much hanging around alex if you're if you're one of the validators but it's, it's quite a maybe lot maybe if this podcast goes big maybe we'll talk about it one day <laughs> so i think one of the big ones that people will know about is DAOs, which is decentralized autonomous organizations right and this is been quite a controversial one but it's effectively you know you have like stocks in a company it's similar to owning like a web 2 company but effectively you there's no central coordination you are distributing this all over the globe and the amount of, say, I don't know, tokens associated with ownership actually um, correspond to your input into the company. And it's really difficult. It's actually quite tricky in terms of legality, like how people are held accountable or liable if, you know, there's individuals all around the world interact on this peer-to-peer -peer basis, maybe not even knowing the identity of these people, how to hold the company accountable if they, say, do a rug pull, for example. Yeah, and we'll come to rug pulls in a little bit, but DAOs are... Yeah, we've also mentioned them before. We mentioned Constitution DAO in last week's episode. They're really like the the DeFi equivalent of a TradFi company, right? It's just you can pull resources together to set up this kind of pseudo company structure where your tokens, the number of tokens, percentage of tokens you have is like you're equal to your voting rights. Essentially, it's quite simple. Um, but, you know, people seem to like them. I'm I'm not that interested in them personally, I think. I'm quite happy with how companies tend to work in the real world. But um, yeah, I, I do see the value in the crowdfunding aspect. As we said, Constitution DAO, 
I, I, I think find it hard to see how something like that would happen without this smart contract based um, crowdfunding. Okay, so I think we've like talked about a lot of the key concepts and related to TradFi as we like in our previous episode. Maybe we should just go through some of the history of how DeFi has evolved and some of the leading examples of successful or maybe even unsuccessful DeFi projects. I think um, I, this is an interesting one. Most people seem to say that DeFi really started in 2015, but surely it started with Bitcoin. Was that not the first like popularized example of, you know, a decentralized financial product in, in some form? Yeah, this is a really contentious point of debate, actually. I think it depends if you cast the net wide enough for DeFi to mean any kind mm. of financial thing like digital cash, like peer-to-peer -peer cash that Bitcoin was, if you mean anything that involves a distributed system. Personally, I think people see DeFi as something that involves a smart contract or an interactive contract which is why it's associated so much with the birth of Ethereum, right? Because that really mm. became a smart contracting platform. And that's not to say Bitcoin can't do smart contracting or interactive contracts, really. But it, it wasn't really used in that way for a long time. And a lot of the capabilities were kind of neutered slightly. So I think, yeah, it makes sense why people think of it as, uh, as, as being born with Ethereum, I think. Yeah, and I think when we talked about the origins of blockchain, we mentioned Ethereum as kind of popularizing the term world computer, right? And I think, like mm. you say, there's connotations there of being able to easily input or upload these this smart contract or automated execution programs onto a blockchain. So it was really Ethereum that enabled a lot of the DeFi protocols that we talk about today. And like when we start to talk about all the projects that are built in it, almost all of them are built in Ethereum right now mostly because of footfall, first mover, all this kind of stuff. But yeah, it was really Ethereum that started, let's say, started off the, the, the DeFi movement. I think one way you could say is like in Ethereum, smart contracts are treated very much like first class citizens. They're kind of given equal status to user accounts, let's say. They're called externally owned accounts, which I'd hate the term. But in, in, mm -hmm. um, in something like Bitcoin, uh, you have to do a bit more work to make smart contracts kind of easy to use, basically. Um, but yeah, so I think, yeah, for me, it starts with Ethereum, in, in, my, in my view, the modern understanding of what we're talking about, automated market makers, they're all on Ethereum and, and similar platforms, right? And then, you know, one of the, as we've said on the, on the pod before, the DAO hack was one of the big first events that happened in DeFi. If we're classing DAOs as part of DeFi, then the 2016 hack was like the first evidence of, okay, this, this stuff can go wrong, really badly <laughs> wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, the point there was that people, there was vulnerabilities in the smart contract itself, right? And then yep. someone worked these out, some hacker, and was able to actually siphon funds off. And they siphoned, like, was it tens of millions or hundreds of millions? And as we said previously, this led to the split of Ethereum versus Ethereum Classic. Yeah, it's a kind of, I guess, Ethereum is the best example, the first example of something that enabled DeFi protocols to really flourish. But there's also some uh, some actual examples of how it can go wrong that are quite important. And we'll reference these throughout. So if Ethereum is the first big thing you want to talk about on the history of DeFi, the next one, which is another hot topic, is Uniswap, which started in 2018. We've already talked about it a little bit. But this is effectively a marketplace where you could swap cryptocurrencies for one another in an entirely automated way without requiring any middlemen and one of the things that we mentioned which is quite interesting about this obviously lots of efficiency gains enabled cheaper transactions all this kind of stuff but a really interesting thing is about uniswap was that there was no kyc right you didn't have to upload identity you didn't have to prove who you were and this made accountability um really tricky and actually quite a hot topic yeah and and um you know uniswap is interesting right because it's now kind of it's one of the first big users of this amm model for decentralized exchanges and it's become huge it's like something like two billion plus in uh, in the value of the they said the, the term is tvl total value locked inside the protocol right it's huge and it's really it's it's great because the bigger the liquidity pool you have backing a given decentralized exchange an amm is that you have much less kind of price slippage and the price is much more stable. You know, if you, if mm. a single person wants to transact, then it impacts the price less. It changes that curve on the constant product a little bit less. Yeah, it seemed quite ambitious and quite beneficial to society. I think the goals really were to, as we say with a lot of these things, was to remove unnecessary intermediaries, but really to also make exchanges more accessible and to remove barriers to 
people actually using these services and democratizing access. And sometimes that comes to the detriment of, you know, identification and knowing who you're actually interacting with. But it was it was an extremely interesting and still is an extremely interesting project. Yeah. And that was around for kind of a few years before we got to what's now called DeFi summer, right? When when these things just exploded, it was in summer of 2020, right? So when everyone was at home, nothing better to do than sit in their bedrooms, <laughs> looking into DeFi finally. That's when the whole market like completely exploded, right? It went from something like 1 billion to 9 billion uh, total value locked in these protocols in just a few months, right? So it had this wave where everyone was, because I'd heard the term since 2018. And then in 2020, it became this, okay, this is a real thing. Mm. And it became a kind of household name that didn't last too long, as we know. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's been several kind of high profile crashes. You said rug pulls as well, which we'll get onto. But um, it's just worth noting that was the height of, of DeFi. And now it's kind of in a consolidation phase where there's, yeah. uh, there's still lots of building. But I think people are struggling to make as much money as they once were on it. And I do wonder how much COVID actually had to do with the kind of the takeoff of this DeFi summer. I, like I imagine that maybe like traditional or TradFi systems because of the need for face-to-face -face interaction and you know, KYC, all this kind of stuff. Maybe there was uh, an all of a sudden an understanding that DeFi is the way to go. Or maybe it was, as you said, people just had a lot of time in their hands and they were like, what can I spend that time doing? And I think one of the interesting things about this DeFi summer that you're talking about was because there was this boom of projects out of nowhere jumping onto networks, it actually had a lot of downsides for Ethereum, right? There was a lot of congestion on the network. We said everything is built on Ethereum, a lot of congestion. And this was really one of the first times that people, well, maybe not people, but the general public started to see that Ethereum maybe not be as scalable as it claimed to be. Like it was actually really expensive to start to use Ethereum day to day and use it for you know, real world applications and all this kind of stuff. And this is what I think, this is one of the first times around 2020 was I started to understand about all these kind of other solutions for scaling off chain, side chains, all this kind of stuff, layer two solutions because of the problems that this actually put on Ethereum. Yeah, you're right. I mean, history repeats. Ethereum had its its uh, crypto kitties moment a number of years before <laughs> where, you know, this one project got popular and it completely congested the network. Same thing in DeFi summer became very, very expensive to transact. And a lot of that efficiency gain we talk about with DeFi, the theoretical efficiency was kind of wiped away. I think that's probably a nice way to segue onto kind of well, what's like, let's put the, the pros and cons out there. What are the benefits and drawbacks of, of DeFi in general, right? Because we've, we've now we define the main components. We know some of the actual protocols themselves in more detail. What are the, what are the big, let's start with benefits, right? Let's be positive. What do you see as the big benefits beyond just the fact that it's decentralized? Because lots some people, some people say that's a benefit, <laughs> but that doesn't convince me. But yeah, what, what is it for you? I think the big one is like the ethical, I think it's an ethical one for me. It's like the inclusivity, the accessibility, like the fact that a lot of these protocols, maybe they I believe in it or don't believe in it, but they kind of go in with the philosophy that open protocols, decentralized financial protocols offer better financial inclusion for individuals and, <clears throat> and businesses as well. And like I know there's to the detriment of you saying you don't need to KYC people. You don't need to, you can't have like a full identity attestation for a lot of these things, but there are definitely use cases where I don't necessarily need to know who I'm interacting with. And I think that's a, a kind of, I think the ethical for my mind, especially for maybe low, um, low order magnitude kind of transactions, smaller transactions, higher, higher frequency transactions. I get the financial inclusion aspect. I don't think you need to KYC everyone for every single transaction. And I think, yeah, the accessibility is a big one for me for a lot of these. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. It's a much more open, transparent financial system, right? Whether the whether mm. the transparency shows you that it doesn't work <laughs> is another question. But I agree, like the fact that you can have easier access to some forms of capital. Again, I don't know how much it helps, um, kind of from a financial inclusion perspective with that over collateralization of loans. Like if I want to get a loan, mm. then I need to have more money already to to, to put down yeah, as true. collateral. But but I think I agree, like having less friction right less kyc in some cases and letting people take their own risk is is fair i think there's a market for it i just think maybe maybe not enough education around people knowing what risks they're taking when they do it um and and this idea of censorship resistance i kind of railed on it a little bit earlier as you know in a jokey way but there is something there i think the fact that it's a platform and that something like Ethereum is broadly agnostic to who is using it and what you're doing on it, right? The Ethereum network just processes things. I think mm. that's good. It can help people 
in in very extreme circumstances to move money to gain access to to certain assets to to, to you know get loans and things like that. I think it definitely definitely has benefits there that are yeah. compelling to me. I think like I, just to jump on a point that you just said, it kind of although I'm saying it's more accessible and it's hard to say restrict people from using things like this. You assume technical literacy, right? To actually be able to understand these smart contracts that you're actually say giving or receiving loans from so maybe there is it works i think it, it's not as clear-cut as just it makes it more accessible for people i think there's mm-hmm. assumptions you have to make for the people that are using it themselves um another big one that i know you're going to mention as well is liquidity right i think it's a principle of blockchain that we've mentioned previously in assets based on blockchain nfts tokens all this kind of stuff it's the idea of making exchange and representing value in a more liquid and easy easily accessible tradable way i think that's a fundamental benefit of a lot of web3 technologies yeah exactly and that's you know we said one of the really cool things about automated market makers is that you can quite easily see how much liquidity these assets have based on the pool sizes and therefore you know roughly the price stability so i think that's a really positive thing and even broader than DeFi, as said with tokenization making very illiquid uh, classically illiquid assets quite more liquid and making it more accessible for people to to trade and even doing derivatives right dydx is is kind of does derivatives as a protocol in DeFi. i think yeah it's interesting that you have these very different ways to access these financial products where normally you you would have to go through a lot of hoops the the barrier to entry is very very high to doing that and then yeah the liquidity provision being more transparent is good Mm. I don't want to go into the, the disadvantages yet, but it, 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 they all kind of have a two sides of the coin, right? Because with liquidity, then you then talk about, well, lots of the stable coins are mediating a lot of this, and we don't know how liquid the backing mm. is of those, but we'll come back to that one. Um, composability, I also mentioned earlier, right? I think this is likewise, it's good and bad because it means you have all these different protocols, these smart contracts that can talk to each other, do different things. You can build very interesting applications with them that give you functionality beyond what you can get potentially with the TradFi world. But this introduces a lot of complexity and the more mm. the more complexity, the more risk, the more attack vectors, the more ways it can go wrong are introduced. So, you know, they, they may be getting higher leverage opportunities from them, but again, treat it with caution is, is always what I'd say is, is you never know the kind of systemic risk of some of the these protocols. Yeah, and I do relate like composability to interoperability. And it's something yeah. we talk a lot about in the context of Web3. You say Web1 was super open. Anyone could build everything. You had this like um, extreme, uh, you know, many, many projects being built simultaneously on Web1 protocols, like smaller projects. And then Web2 became much more monopolized, closed gardens, all this kind of stuff. And I think we see that obviously TradFi is a perfect example of walled gardens. There's like four you know, terminal chip and pin payment providers in really Europe and America. And I think that's to the detriment of competition. Like monopolies tend to not be good, I would say, in in most cases. And the fact that DeFi is interoperable, composable, it allows smaller companies to build up and compete. And also, like you say, the interaction between multiple companies obviously just adds benefit to the users. Users being able to jump between different protocols is a good thing for the users, I'd say. Yeah, um, so I agree. I, I, and I like likening it to interoperability, right? That's exactly what it is. And that's why it's good that we have all these standards because they are almost interoperable from their inception because they're built using similar standards. So yeah, I think it, and it's, it's good that you can see the protocols and how they work. You can analyze them. It means they're more robust in, in the long term. Um, one of the other ones that people talk about as an advantage, and I agree with, but with a big caveat again, is that you don't really have a central point of failure in these systems necessarily because you don't have a single party that can you know say suspend your trading like you have with a typical exchange but i i do still think you can consider the smart contracts themselves a bit like a central point of failure and you normally have someone who mm. builds a smart contract even when it's open source you have someone who can manage it you potentially sometimes have back doors right and you know, there's been examples of people saying oh there's this treasury wallet associated with all the fees collected in this protocol and it's locked forever and then it turns out it's not locked that kind of thing so again, it's a sliding scale between how much of a centralization risk you have with these things. But the fact that it gives you better uptime for these things, the fact that you don't have quite the same level of single party failure risk as, as traditional finance, I think is quite a good thing. 
Yeah, I think the big one that you mentioned earlier was around reduced counterparty risk. Like you say, DeFi aiming to minimize you know, the trust needed in, in counterparties generally with you know, peer-to-peer interactions, with smart contract enforcing the rules, all this kind of stuff that provides a degree of trust. But like you say, the way you do that, because I don't necessarily have recourse to actually punish you if you don't meet the criteria of our smart contract, is you have to put up much more assets than is actually involved in, in the deal between you and I. And I think that's a, quite annoying. I understand why you would do that, but it is a big inhibitor for me to actually... Yeah, having this as a benefit but we're not getting into the downsides right yet now are we well maybe maybe we should i, I feel like i'm ready to now mm, um yeah. i simply said all the positives yeah. i can i mean and to be fair i, I think I've, I've said quite a lot of them already right because a lot of these are good and bad and i've kind of given the the, the that sides away i think one of the biggest risks is that it, obviously it is all experimental but at the moment and because we're putting so much reliance in the smart contracts when there is a problem with them then as I keep saying, it goes really, really badly wrong. And it's not trivial to just update that. We've seen you know, thousands of hacks um, and very high profile hacks in the past. Mm. You mentioned rug pulls, right? This is when founders of a DeFi project abandon a project and take all the money. You know, There's been examples of this, like a decentralized exchange called uh, Thodex. I think it was about 2 billion in funds taken from that. So it's not small change that's been lost to these uh, protocols. And I, you know, as as with anything, if you it, wherever you introduce the the individuals and the companies into this again, you, you have mm. risk of bad actors in the space, which is is something we have to be aware of. Yeah, I think a big one as well that we kind of mentioned is a, a potential benefit of DeFi versus TradFi systems is around the financial crisis, where we said, you know, all this complexity, this lack of transparency, all, all of that could be potentially solved with DeFi and smart contracts and all this kind of stuff. But the fact is, like, just because I'm putting a smart contract, which is just, you know, uh, ex- automated, executable code on a blockchain, doesn't mean anyone's going to be able to read that. That requires, like, a high understanding and a technical understanding of the details of that. It doesn't make mm-hmm. it more readable just because it's transparent. And I think, like you say, with a lot of these smart contracts, it is very complex and difficult to read. And that, that's one of the reasons why we have so many bugs, so many hacks, is because even the people that claim to understand them don't always understand them. Yeah, that's the complexity piece, right? The more bells and whistles you add to this, uh, the more difficult it gets. And one of the other big issues that you've already hinted at is scalability. The fact that when these things were popular in, in DeFi summer, then that the chains underneath them couldn't really handle the demand. And because of that, people are moving to layer two scaling solutions and lots of other things like rollups, which we'll, I'm sure we'll cover at some point. But again, the more layers you add to the system, the more I- integration and connection points, the more risks you have, the the more ways it can go wrong, the less it's understood how they interact and you have a slightly different security model. So now people are using DeFi, but from layer two, right? Which is kind of a bit mind boggling. And, uh, and and I'm sure people don't know exactly the risks of in, associated when they start doing things like that, right? Yeah. And a big thing that I think you told me was around the centralization of these decentralized platforms is that the top four decentralized exchange, exchanges actually make up 54% of the entire market share. And that's a, that's a big problem, right? We're saying that you know, when we talk about distributed networks and decentralized networks, the point is to have network resilience. But if everyone is coming through, you know, one node provider or one exchange, then it kind of removes the point of having a distributed network. Because if that one provider goes down, then everyone's access to this distributed network is gone. So it's no longer resilient mm-hmm. to network damages, which is one of the points of blockchain, right? And actually, one thing we should have mentioned on that, just to extend what you said, I completely agree is that in something like a liquidity pool, how do you know that it's not one person with many, many different addresses yeah. and many, many different source of funds who's the, you know, who could just try and pull it all out? Obviously, there, there's some protections against that based on how it's set up, but we still don't know necessarily because of this lack of identity um, exactly how it's set up. So, Yeah, and I think one more thing, I think this is like a, maybe a more philosophical thing, is around the idea of the smart contracts and Ethereum, I would say generally people that work on Ethereum think that the entire world, every parameter, every outcome can be coded into a smart contract. And I do have a problem with that. I think that it's possible. And for a lot of things, it's it should be done because it's efficient. But there's always going to be, you know, it's the unknown unknowns, right? When you and I enter into an agreement, we can't possibly quantify and qualify every single event that could happen related to that agreement right and i think this is kind of something that people in the space have to get their head around you can't code everything up not the whole world and every outcome isn't binary 
And I think there has to be some means for recourse. Say if you and I enter into an agreement where I give you a loan and based on some parameters, you'll return me 10% on that. If it don't, doesn't happen, you give me collateral. Even if the worst case scenario, you can't pay me back, there should be some mechanism for recourse that if the interaction goes, as we say it is with the two outcomes, that's fine. But if not, there's a third party involved that doesn't have to be involved continuously for interactions just in case something goes wrong. We can then go to them and have the ability to recourse hmm. and to get technical. This is like a two of three multi-sig or something like this, yeah. right? Yeah, I think that's a really important point, actually. Um, and maybe kind of, because I, I wanted to close things off by just saying, like, is there anything like, future looking that you're really interested in in the DeFi space and one of the things i'm in i kind of intrigued by is this idea of reputation systems interacting with uh DeFi protocols where you can build reputation but pseudonymously right mm. so you don't have to disclose your actual identity and kyc information but you can still build a reputation as a trusted lender or a trusted borrower or something like that i think that will be really really interesting and i you know not to be too meta there's kind of potentially ways we can do that with maybe even proof of work itself. But uh, I'll leave that thought for another day, probably. Mm. I mean, what about you? Is there anything that like really gets you excited for the future of DeFi? I think it's just all the buzzwords, right? I think like the idea, we was talking about the, the difficulty with having full KYC process and no KYC process. I think when we start to apply some of the principles and technologies of digital identity, where we can kind of meet in the middle, like I do potentially do like, upload my digital identity, but don't reveal all my information. I think there's a powerful overlap there. Obviously, the biggest buzzword, AI, like I think of smart contracts and how we can take them from just, you know, simple executables to something much more complex. And I think that maybe one amalgamation of that would be smart contracts using AI or AI based smart contracts to actually kind of start to do things that are a bit more intelligent than just giving the money back or else you have to pay all this money. Um, another one would be big players moving into the space, like when we start to see, you know, institutional adoption regulation just to make it more comfortable for people to operate in this. And I think a weird one that I've seen a lot of movement on generally just to spitball everything is off-chain computation. Like you say, there's all these scalable scalability issues with Ethereum and like people are starting to realize that they're not usable for the type of volume of transactions that's actually needed to compete with TradFi. Well, something that's happening now is rather than having these side chains and layer twos and layer threes and all this kind of stuff, is to actually do the computation off-chain and have some kind of verifiable, provable way to link that computation back on chain or the results of that computation back on chain. And this is a big body of work starting to happen now called verifiable computation. Um, and that'll be quite interesting to see if that can solve some of the, the, um, the scalability issues that we talked about. Mm, interesting. I think uh, we're getting into some very, very difficult concepts to talk about now. So maybe we'll, let's come back to that yeah. one in a year and see uh, see how far along it is. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I think we've solved DeFi, right? It actually um, wasn't that bad. I think it was really useful to set the tone with TradFi last week. But yeah, it's a really interesting area. We're going to have a lot of follow-up conversations, follow-up episodes, and definitely follow-up guests who have much more expertise in this space than uh, Jack or I. But on that, thank you for listening, wherever you may be, and join us next time as we untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.